Frank Faschino Jr. and I got together a few years ago at a conference, and he's been working on the Flatwoods Monster case. Behold, there were the articles where the Air Force instructed its pilots to shoot them down if they don't land when ordered to do so. And I hadn't known a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Because it wasn't in the Times, the Washington Post, and so forth. So what I'm saying is this is an aspect of the whole problem that hasn't been considered, and that's why I recommend Frank's book, Shoot Them Down. Three of the pilots were people who'd had over a hundred combat missions in Korea where there were MiGs trying to shoot them down. Yeah. They survived that and they come back to the States and they crashed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. No commercials, no subscriptions, no networks, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 8 Live. And as usual here, we are broadcasting from the outskirts of Boston, Massachusetts, which is home to the world champion Boston Red Sox. I just want to get that in there. It's been quite a month here in the Massachusetts area. We're all very thrilled. Congratulations to the Sox. Thank you for an awesome ride. And we're getting ready for an awesome ride to take place in just a few moments. We're doing another first-time guest here on the program. Our guest is Frank Faschino. He is the author of a couple of groundbreaking and outstanding books, The Braxton County Monster, as well as Shoot Them Down, The Flying Saucer Air Wars of 1952. And I owe a big thanks to Alfred Lemberg and Jeremy Vaney, both for recommending Frank Machino. I can't believe those two guys worked in tandem on this one. But a long time ago, Alfred Lemberg wrote to me and suggested Frank, and somehow it got lost in the shuffle. And then recently, Jeremy Vaney also recommended Frank, and I said, everybody keeps recommending Frank Machino. And, and I had Stan Friedman on the show five years ago, and that's where you heard those clips here that began the program. And he was raving about Frank's work. So it's long, long, long overdue that we got him on the program. Frank, welcome to BOA Audio. Thank you for being patient enough and finally arriving here on BOA Audio. We're really looking forward to it. Hey, Tim, glad to be here. Didn't we actually meet in Las Vegas a few years ago? I believe we did, yeah. We met yeah, it was the, kind uh, of brief. It was kind of a busy conference. It was, a, Yeah, it was quite the event. <laughs> yeah, it was a good time, though. Yeah, that was at the crash uh, The crash. I guess crash conference, right? Yeah. Yeah. Second right, one. Right. I think it was '06, and it was uh, it was in Vegas. It was quite the uh, quite the happening. I remember your presentation. You had a film uh, that you were working on. Right. So I guess you know to catch people up to speed. We usually do this with the first time guests, even though we're live and everything. It's uh, you know this is for posterity. You know, a hundred years from now, somebody could be listening to this and they're going to need this background information. So tell us a little bit about Frank Machino. Who are you? How did you get interested in UFOs and Really, you know, how did that interest lead you into this research into the Braxton County monster and, of course, the uh, the Flying Saucer Air Wars of 52? Well, Tim, about a little over 20, 20 to 21 years ago, I was visiting some relatives in uh, Braxton County. 
I have relatives in Flatwoods and Frametown. And uh, I actually started looking into uh, crop circles because there was a lot of crop circles appearing throughout Braxton County, and some of them were actually on my cousin's property. So I started photographing them, taking samples, and, you know, documenting all of these uh, crop circle rings and patterns that were strewn throughout the area. And I was told about a few other ones, so I documented them throughout Braxton County, and I was running around up there with my cousin. And at the time, I was living in Connecticut. That was before I moved to Florida. And I was put in contact with Colin Andrews. And I shared all my data with Colin. And, uh, excuse me, at that point, I didn't know about the Flatwoods Monster. I was uh, making trips to West Virginia and documenting the crop circle rings when I had a chance. So I've been talking back and forth for a while with Colin about this, and we were trading notes. And in the meantime, I had found out about this case called the Braxton County Monster. Mm And so I kind of stumbled into it. Somebody told me about this, you know, well, you know, this is one aspect of the UFO stuff here with uh, crop circle rings, and there were tons of UFO sightings up there, but the reports rarely came out of the mountains. And uh, I started looking into this case, uh, the Braxton County Monster or Flatwoods Monster, also known as, and uh, it wasn't easy at first looking into this case. Uh, it intrigued me more the way the people reacted when you said, you know, the Flatwoods Monster. People kind of backed off and wouldn't talk about it. You know, it was like a, a standoff. And I'm like, oh, this is crazy. What the hell happened here back in 52? The people are still acting weird about this. So I started looking into the case uh, through uh, different uh, periodicals, magazines, books, basically anything I can get my hands on. And I continued going back and forth from Connecticut into West Virginia, researching the Flatwoods case. And I started going to different libraries. And I basically combed the whole state of West Virginia, <laughs> uh, looking through archives, going to museums, libraries. It was unbelievable. I spent years going back and forth and putting this story together. In the meantime, I was put in touch with uh, Kathleen May, who was the primary witness involved uh, in the Flatwoods monster incident. And over the, the course of several years, it, it took me a, a little time to, to actually get in with the people and, and warm up to each other because they were very standoffish about this, this whole incident. And it was hard. And even though I had family up there, I'm still considered an outsider. Right, yeah. And when outsiders go up into the mountains up there, it's very hard to break in. I remember the first time I met Stanton Friedman uh, was back in 1996. I met him in Gulf Breeze at a convention, and we started talking about Flatwoods. I'll never forget, he, he looked at me. He says, how the hell did you get into those mountains? The UFO researchers have been trying to get in there for years. <laughs> and, I, and I told him, I said, I have family there, which made it a little bit easier, but not much. But I did have a little head start on that. Yeah. But um, I basically had to prove myself, Tim, to the, to the people up there of, you know, my sincerity, and I wasn't there to make a joke out of the Flatwoods case like people have done for so many years. When this happened back in 52, uh, it was taken very seriously at the onset, 
but it turned around drastically, and uh, intelligence was actually up there. There were Air Force officials, um, you know, that all were covert. And what happened is the media got hold of this thing, and they just made a joke out of it. So the whole community basically shut down and stopped talking about it. So it was hard for people to get in there to actually talk with the people uh, who were involved in it. Yeah. And when I started just over 20 years ago, a lot of the, the key witnesses were still alive. You have to remember, this is over 60 years ago at this point. Yeah, exactly. Last and year was like the 60th, right? Right. Uh, it's 61 years now. And uh, back at that point in the early 90s, I went to uh, film and video school, and I learned how to work high-end cameras. I had some good teachers. And uh, I was going back and forth. I had moved to Florida. And then I was going back and forth, and I was actually videotaping the different people. <laughs> and so I have all of this archived, and I put together a a little 37-minute documentary that's on YouTube right now, and it shows clips and highlights. Nice, nice. The different witnesses. So it was, it was kind of fun. It was a lot of years put into this, but um, I think as far as I know, I have the longest investigation into this case in history. I would imagine, yeah. And folks can check out flatwoodsmonster.com. I believe there's a link right to the uh, right to the video on the, on right. You can get to the page. So. They should definitely check that out. Well, let me circle back a little bit, because you reminded me, I was looking at your info, that you did start out on the crop circle investigation. Now, I, I, we're going to get deep into Flatwoods and the 52 uh, saucer war, but, but tell me just a little bit about, because I never even considered, uh, I know there's American crop circles, but I didn't even realize that maybe it was big enough that you could actually look into them and investigate them uh, at any depth. So tell me a little bit about what you did looking at those and you know what's that all about well what happened is is my cousin uh purchased property up there quite a few years ago and the property had sat and it was stagnant for several years nobody bought or had bought the property they didn't touch it so he had the property for a little while and then he kind of figured out what the hell was going on because he was uh seeing ufos and saucers all over the place and it was kind of common and right in the area of Frametown, there was a particular incident that happened in the early 90s that went uh, nationwide. And a uh, uh, flying saucer had flown into um, uh, one of my cousin's neighbor's backyards. And it was reported, and it was, I think it was on the Maury Pulpit show. Oh, boy. Well, anyways... This was a big story, and that was one of the first major stories to come out of mountains in years. And the more I started going up and visiting everybody and talking to the locals up there, it was kind of like common, except they didn't want to talk about it. The people up there went through the Flatwoods Monster case, and they're like, oh, we're not going through all this crap again. Right, right. We kind of learned our <laughs> lesson. But this one particular story went nationwide, and they ended up botching it up. And, you know, they edited things poorly, which is, seems to be common practice with television. But anyways, I got to be friends with the people who were involved in this case. And I was introduced to different people throughout the mountains and throughout Braxton County. And it was very common to see UFOs. And at, at first, you know, I took it with a grain of salt. And, you know, I kind of snicker and laugh at the people. And, and they would say, well, don't laugh at us. And... 
you know, go up there in the mountains certain times of the year, certain times of the, the, the evening, you know, and there was actually a lot of daytime sightings, and you're going to see this stuff, and it's like, son of a bitch, there we were. I was up there, and I saw myself, and I actually watched them for hours on end. And I went up there with a lot of different friends and family members. And uh, some of the, the photographs that I took are actually on my website. In the Paratopi area, I have a, a few good shots of some UFOs in flight and uh, making directional changes. And there's some shots of the crop circle. So there was a lot of stuff going on in this one region of Frame Town and, and the outskirts. Yeah. And Frame Town is actually... Uh, if people are familiar with the story, the follow-up story to Flatwoods, where the reptilian was seen by George Nathowski okay. the day after the Flatwoods case. All of this stuff happened right in that area, and it's still going on. Hmm. Makes you wonder what's behind that. You know, what's the what's the source of that interest? Let's say, you know. Well, when you when you talk to the locals up there, yeah, this has been going on up there since the forties. And when I did my first book tour back in 2004, I was, you know, I was going all throughout West Virginia, and my hub was in Charleston. I did a lot of book signings throughout the state, and it was very common to, to have the people telling me about stories that were taking place going back into the 40s and 50s up there. It's kind of funny. There was even one particular incident I'll never forget. This guy walked up to me with his wife, and they had been married for years. And the guy started telling me this unbelievable close encounter case where he saw a uh, bronze craft that was shaped like a disc with a dome on it on the outskirts of Charleston, where the interstate is. There wasn't where the interstate is now. Back then, there wasn't an interstate, right. but in that particular area. And he's going into explicit detail, and his wife looked at him. And she says, we've been married for like 55 years, and you never told me that story. <laughs> so I've heard a, a, a lot of different stuff like that. But um, the locals in Braxton County seem to think there's some type of a vortex up there. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's the opinion. There's some type of a vortex because they're always seen in one particular region. Yeah. And uh, I've seen them up there quite often myself where, where you see them, and then they just disappear, and then they show up over there. And I've seen, oh, God, as many as a dozen at a time flying around in patterns throughout the sky. And like I said, if you go on my website, you could see a, a few of the, the pictures I was able to get. Mm. Now, regarding the crop circles, sort of this debate, you know, <clears throat> messages versus sort of like, uh, you know, um, artifacts of, of, of uh, a UFO landing or whatever, a UFO incident. You know what I mean? Sort of like a trace case, sort of, a, sort of an effect if you will. What, what was your take on well, what you saw for crop circles? What, what what was the makeup of these? What they actually were, Tim, is they weren't crop circles per se like the ones you see in England. Right. Uh, they were more like crop circle rings, and they were kind of like banded rings, hmm. and they were all over all over my cousin's property, and uh, actually he flipped out and went crazy because he had purchased the farm and he was grooming it up because of, you know, yeah, the shabby... Exactly. And he walks out one day and he sees like 60 of them across his property. And he's Holy crap. swearing, calls me up on the phone. He says, got to get your ass up here and document these things and blah, blah, blah. So I went up there with a video camera, 
you know, and still cameras, and I had all my equipment, and I took soil samples and all different stuff, and I gave all that stuff to Colin Andrews. I'll make a long story short, a couple of years later, um, somebody from Colin's camp had contacted me, and the same formation of crop circle rings had appeared in England. How weird. Yeah, it was a couple of years later. And, yeah, that was kind of spooky, you know, West Virginia and England. <laughs> <laughs> He had some type of a, <clears throat> a database system, like fingerprinting, where they, yeah. they cross-reference, yeah. and they had popped. So you have crop circles in England and in Braxton County that were basically the same. Makes you, yeah. I wonder if that connects somehow with this portal idea that maybe, you know, <clears throat> maybe that's the maybe that's the the doorway of sorts, or the like I said, the, the effect of the doorway, or who knows. And then they, they eventually um, went away. The, you know the the whole grass area basically filled back in and it grew back in after a few years and then they appeared again Jeez. about six about six years later and I went back up there and I documented all of those and forwarded those to Colin so there's definitely something going on up there yeah I'm gonna presume it's you know not to be pejorative but it's kind of in the middle of nowhere so we can assume that these oh, aren't yeah. tricksters or pranksters running around on your cousin's farm <laughs> why would so they what, go the one thing it? i learned you do not go onto somebody's property in right. west virginia when they have a no trespassing sign because you'll get your ass shot off <laughs> <laughs> i was warned of that right off the bat they say well you're kind of a, a city boy just be careful with walking around up here <laughs> oh yeah and you don't walk around somebody else's property up there when it's posted no trespassing no hunting yeah exactly yeah, yeah, certainly disappear. no no crop circle <laughs> making so oh yeah they would not be a fan <laughs> Um, all right well that's that's really uh yeah that's really weird and interesting the uh the crop circle aspect of this because you know it's so bizarre and so unique uh in general but let's i guess move into the flatwood story uh you know you've uh, you've been doing this for 20 years you've been looking at this for 20 years like i said we're sort of reaching an audience here that's not only listening at the very moment but could be listening you know 50 to 100 years from now so and i like to think of the program as sort of the paranormal program of records, so we document all this stuff as best as possible. So give us cool. the thumbnail on the Flatwoods monster case, the Braxton monster case. Give us sort of a thumbnail on what went down there in September 1952 so we can catch everybody up to speed on this story. Well, uh, we'll go back to when I went into Flatwoods for the first time. I was with my Sounds cousin, good. and we, yep. we drove into Flatwoods in his truck, and there's this big sign hanging on uh, the side of the road, Welcome to Flatwoods, home of the green monster. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is wild. And uh, we drove into town, jumped out of the truck, and we were over at the school playground. And we were walking around talking to people there. You know, you know, these are country folk. They're walking their dogs, just hanging out. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't lock your doors up there. You really don't have to. And we're just shooting the breeze with some of the locals and... Uh, that's when I'm, they started looking at me like I was nuts when I was saying, you know, what do you know about the Flatwoods Monster? Right, and this is like the and, early 90s, right? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, this was just over 20 years ago, 20, 21 years ago. And I didn't know anything about the case, and I started talking to some different people up there, and, you know, they just kind of laughed at it. And then I started looking into it a little bit deeper. When I got back to Connecticut, I went to a lot, I went to, uh, Yale uh, Library, all New Haven, Bridgeport Libraries, and I was hitting every place looking up the, the stuff for September 12, 1952. And I was going to the 
different bookstores throughout Connecticut and in New York, used bookstores, mm-hmm. and I was looking at New Age. And I started finding out that there was no two stories about the Flatwoods Monster case that were the same. The story had been become so convoluted, it was unbelievable. Here I have a collection of books, magazines, and um, every single one was different. And I saw what had happened, how the people were made fun of, and how they just shut down. So I kept going back up there, and I eventually was put in touch with Kathleen May, the primary witness. And she she was sick on and off for several years. And at the point when I started looking into this, she was very sick. So I just basically did interviews with her and talked to her over the telephone. And I was going to different people's homes. They were like, go talk to this one. He was involved. This one saw this. So every trip up there, I'm banging on doors, calling (laughs) people up, being a pain in the neck, and trying to find out what happened. Well, Kathleen kind of coordinated everything and would call the people ahead because I was having trouble getting in there. There was was a couple little instances of myself going into town, and I learned I don't walk around with a $50,000 camera slung over my shoulder with a tripod (laughs) and walk into, like, a breakfast cafe because, you know, there'll be 30, 40 people in there clinging to forks and blah, 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 and they all stop. And they all stare at you and look at you, and you hear them like, "Who the hell is this guy?" Yeah, you know. And I didn't fit in, and uh, so I started traveling more with my cousin instead of going by myself because I didn't like going through the mountains by myself. You hear a lot of crazy stories. I can imagine. Yeah. Now, just to just to just to jump in for a moment, now, given yeah. that you've dedicated twenty years to uh, to really setting the record straight about this story, you're kind of like uh, more. Uh, I, I won't go so far as to say beloved, but you are are you more accepted by the locals there now? Or are they kind of like that's Frank? He's he's you know he's on our side. Yeah, uh, actually the the whole community took me in. It, yeah. it wasn't overnight, <laughs> yeah. but I basically vindicated the people, and nice. you know the proof is in my books, and and it's. It's funny, whenever I, fl- I don't drive up there anymore, that's too long of a drive from Florida, I'm over there. But flying in and out of Huntington and out of Charleston, it's just funny whenever I land in the airports, the people will walk up to me and they recognize me because I've been on the news up there probably a hundred different times and everybody recognizes me and comes over and shoots the breeze with me. So it's kind of cool. More people know me up there than in Florida. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. You know, so basically I was accepted up there. Nice. Because I kind of, for lack of better terms, I kind of represented them almost as an attorney because there were so many people have tried to beat this story down, and they can't because I come back with the proof and the evidence because I have a ton of government documentation. Yeah. I have firsthand um, eyewitness account, and I have the Colonel Levin interview. So... And then the main thing is all the Project Blue Book documents. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of pounds of paper just for September 12th and 13th, 1952. Oh, wow. And that is where everything just went went crazy when I started looking outside of Flatwoods. It's kind of funny, Tim. A couple of, uh, about three years ago, I was in Charleston, and I was bringing different souvenirs and different things back, and my suitcase was over the 50-pound limit. It was 52 pounds, Yeah. right? And they said, you're going to have to take something out of there, Mr. Pacino. And I went over, and I had 
my project Blue Book September 12th and 13th uh, sheets. Yeah. And I pulled it out, and it went down to 50 pounds. So <laughs> I actually, <laughs> honest to God, I actually have two pounds worth of documents for Project Blue Book that have to do with the Flatwoods case and what happened throughout the the United States on that one night. And September 13th, there's a handful of documents. So there's a lot of stuff going on. That's a two-story, too. <laughs> so I just carried that Project Blue Book uh, paperwork you know, with you. Book yeah. and that paperwork on, is my carry-on. <laughs> okay. Nice. Holy crap. Um, all right. So, so taking us back to, to your investigation and everything, how, how, did, uh, how did everything unfold that night, I guess, so, so uh, you know, we can catch people up? Well, we have this uh, story where a, a bunch of kids had seen a fireball go over the elementary school playground mm-hmm. uh, of Flatwoods. And one of the key points here, Tim, is uh, Flatwoods is the geographical dead bullseye center of the state of West Virginia. And if you look at a, a map of the, the eastern United States and mid-Atlantic area, Flatwoods is actually just about 200 miles due west of Washington, D.C., which is going to come into play later. Okay. So basically, if you stood in Washington at a high point and looked west 200 miles, you're going to see Flatwoods. All right. Okay? Yeah. And that's a key point. Well, anyways, um, I was September 12:52. It was just before 7.30 that night. And a bunch of kids were out playing uh, football, pickup ball on the uh, um, playground. And this gigantic flaming object, it was basically shaped like an egg. It was about 16 to 18 feet high and approximately 32 feet long. And it flew from the north, headed south. It flew over a mountaintop at very low level flew over the school, made a 45-degree angle turn, and flew across the um, Route 4 and landed up on a mountaintop on a Bailey Fisher farm across the street. So the kids see this thing go over. Some of them are yelling, it's a UFO, it's a saucer. Some are yelling, it's a meteor, the little kids. And these kids, you know, were ranged, you know, they were average about 10 years old up to 18. Okay. And they were all screaming, Let's go check this thing out. And they ran up the street approximately a mile to the house of Kathleen May. And Kathleen May's house is on Depot Street, and it sits just in back of the train depot. This was the access road that actually led up onto the Bailey Fisher Farm. So what we have here is this bunch of kids running into Kathleen's house. Two of the boys in the group were Freddie May and Eddie May. Um, Eddie May was 13, and his kid brother, Freddie, was 11. I worked with Freddie and Kathleen very close over the years. They were the ones who really uh, went above and beyond to help me with this and got me connections with other people in the community. Mm-hmm. So these kids go screaming in the front door. Something landed up on the back hill at a Fisher Farm. And Kathleen May, she was a, a beautician. She worked in town. She had just got home, and she had her 1950s-era uh, little beautician outfit. She had a hat on with her uniform. 
And the oldest boy in the group, Gene Lemon, that was her first cousin. And Gene, being the oldest one, he was kind of in, in charge of getting all of the kids together. Right. And he went up onto the farm with Kathleen May. Well, some of the kids chickened out and went home because they were scared. And in the end, we actually have Kathleen May, Gene Lemon, we had 14-year-old Neil Munley, Teddy Neal, he was 13, so, as well as uh, Eddie. We had Freddie May, 11, Ronald Shaver, 10. They were on the playground, and a little kid from the neighborhood had heard the commotion, and his name was Tommy Heyer, and he was 6 years old. So we have a bunch of boys between 6 and 18 years old. There were seven of them. Kathleen May was 32 years old. Oh, wow. It's dusk. And here goes this wagon train of West Virginia folk up into the back to check out what had happened. <laughs> yeah. And um, the layout of the land, I, this is very important because this kind of gives you an overview of the farm. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's three sections to the farm, Tim. The first section to the farm is a big, wide open pasture field. Okay. And. You walk across the field and over to the left-hand side of the property facing north in the corner of the property is a big, gigantic gate. And this it's a steel gate. And this separated the first pasture of the farm from the middle pasture. All right. The middle pasture of the farm is a big gully. And it sweeps down from the left-hand side down to the right. And there was woods on the left-hand side. That's the number two pasture. Mm -hmm. The third pasture was where this thing had touched down and landed way up on the back part of the Fisher property. Okay. And that's where the boys saw this thing stop in midair. It didn't come down, you know, on a, on, in a trajectory where it crashed and impacted into the earth. The thing kind of hovered and just dropped straight to the ground below the tree lines. Hmm, like a lay so, landing, almost. Yeah, right. And this this thing was, was on fire, flames, there's pieces falling off of it, and it kind of stopped and just dropped below the, the horizon line of where, their point of view because they're down in the valley looking up higher. Mm -hmm. So they're walking up onto the first pasture of the farm. And I worked close with Kathleen for several years and interviewed her several times and a lot of audio and video recordings, and I always took notes when I got together with her. One of the main things that Kathleen was always talking about as she was starting to head up onto the hill, when uh, the first pasture, when she got across the crest, she said there was a big, gigantic, purplish flare, and the whole farm lit up. She she wasn't on the farm. She was going up the walkway, of, which was like a dirt path, and she saw the flare out in the backside of the farm, and yeah. she didn't know what it was. They cleared the crest of the 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 hill where the walkway was it's like a driveway now and as they started walking into the path they were looking and the kids were pointing that's where it went down it was way back there mm -hmm. so the whole group walk across the the first pasture in the meantime there was a collie from the nearby neighborhood that had joined the group it was a big collie dog and Freddie May reminded me of the size of this dog. It, w it was big. 
Freddie had a dog, and Gene Lemon also had a dog. They were from the same litter. They, okay. they were little mid-sized dogs. So we have this group of eight people, two adults leading the group, Kathleen and Gene Lemon. They're walking across the path, and this big German, uh, I mean Collie, walks across, and is hanging out with them. Right. They got up to the first fence, and they opened the fence up. They all passed through it, and they closed it up behind them. Now, as they're walking up a little bit further, which is actually east at this point, the woods are to the left-hand side of them. Okay. And their path starts ascending and going up Mm -hmm. because it's going towards the back. And over to the right-hand side is where that gully is. And to the right-hand side of the path, there was brush. And a lot of the kids couldn't see up above that point because this brush was surrounding the area. The the farm was was unkept. Mm -hmm. And they saw something flashing out in the distance. Now, at that point there, what had actually happened is when the craft touched down in the back, Tim, it actually relocated and settled itself and nestled in in the corner of the farm, and there was a a small pear tree orchard back then in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And the thing was kind of tucked away in back of these pear trees. Some of the kids saw this thing intermittently flashing, the older boys, they could see up over the brush. They saw this thing flashing. Yeah. And the kids are very adamant about, we saw up there. So they have their eyes focused, looking straight up ahead. Mm-hmm. So as they start moving up this, uh, it's basically like, a, it's still the same. Now it's it's a old dirt path. They called it a wagon path. And they're starting to ascend and walk up towards the back and they noticed this smell, and it was like a sulfur smell, and it was coming from in front of them, and it started permeating coming down the path at a low level. At this point, Mrs. May was at a fence, and basically what it was, Tim, it was a fence that was between three and four foot high, and there were posts to the left and right, and Mrs. May told me that back then, there was just big posts uh, with these slats that were nailed from left to right. So they had to climb over this. This, Mm -hmm. Now you have the second one. This is another obstacle. They start climbing over this fence, the first people, and the rest of them are strewn out behind like a wagon train. So at this point, you had Mrs. May, Jean Lemon, Neil Nunley, Eddie May, and Ronald Shaver. Plus the three dogs. And and there's one dog. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. The other one's bailed. The other two dogs neglected to go any further. (laughs) They wouldn't go past that fence. Right. The collie went ahead. So we have all the the adults up front leading the path, and you have this this sickening sulfur smells permeating down the path. Mm. Now, it's what Mrs. May told me. It's it's a slang word. She said there's a swag in the path, and I I was never up there with Kathleen because she was physically incapable of going up there. Right. But I was up there several times with Freddie May. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened is as the collie went ahead, it 
started barking and it disappeared and it went into this. It's, it was like a misty smoke. Oh, it was tearing ass up the up around the swag and it went straight up and it basically disappeared because of this swag. It swings to the left mm-hmm. and this whole time you're walking uphill. Freddie May, Teddy Neal, and Little Tommy Hire had reached that wooden fence. And they were just starting to climb over it. They never passed it. And the rest of the group is moving up ahead. All of a sudden, the dog starts barking, barking its ass off. It takes off and lets out a yelp, and it runs back. And it runs past Mrs. May Lemon, and all the boys runs, and it jumps through the fence because the dog <laughs> could get through right, it. Right, right, yeah. And it ran past Freddie, Teddy, and Tommy Hire, and it went back to the house. <laughs> so, and, oh my God! And, and you know, I'll kind of jump ahead a little bit. Okay. Ivan Sanderson reported that dog was found dead the next day on the veranda of somebody's porch. Oh God! So, anyways, Mrs. May and Lemon, they're leading the pack, and they're, the rest of the boys are strewn out in this wagon train, and Mrs. May and Gene Lemon each had flashlights. Lemon had a flashlight because he lived in the neighborhood and he would walk back and forth and visit Mrs. May and the kids. And you always had a flashlight in West Virginia walking through the woods up there. Mrs. May had a flashlight. Her and Lemon are walking side by side. Mrs. May is to the left-hand side of the path closer to the woods. Lemon's towards the outside and the other boys are behind him. Mrs. May told me she heard this noise that sounded like a, a thumping noise. And it was basically, as she described it, it was like a stretched canvas, kind of like a drum. Okay. Um, like a, a, a tom-tom drum. And she heard this thumping, repetitive thumping. And she heard this noise that was like a hiss noise that sounded like air escaping from something. And as she started moving a little bit closer to the left of her, there was this gigantic white oak tree, and it was set about four feet off to the left. And there's a little incline. There's a little roll there. It's not all level. And as Mrs. May started nearing this area, this is where it became a little bit thicker, where this was the point where this sulfur mist, it was like a gas, was emanating from, and it's coming from behind this tree area. Well, as Mrs. May started walking a little closer towards this tree, it said about four feet back. Lemon was behind her. They looked up, and about 12 feet up in the air, they noticed these two glowing eyes. Uh, they thought it was actually, because it was up that high, they thought it was some type of an animal perched up on a, on a branch, yeah. 12 feet up in the air. It's right. like, what the hell else is going to be 12 foot high way up there? Plus, you have about a three or four for incline. So this, these eyes are up pretty high up in the air. So as they neared this, they clicked on their flashlights and they pointed their flashlights up into the woods. And it's about dusk now, and it was a little darker in the wooded area off to their left. And as they flashed their, the beams hit up into that area, Tim, um, this thing lit up. And Mrs. May told me it lit up like a Christmas tree. It illuminated from the inside. And this is what your Flatwoods monster was. It was a 12-foot-tall metallic-like structure. Hmm. The thing actually had lifted off the ground. It was a hovercraft. 
And this hovercraft was actually, the propulsion system was the gas and the air and the hissing noise that was escaping from this craft lifted off the ground about a foot, a foot and a half, and it came down the four-foot incline and crossed, crossed over the path in front of them. Gene Lemon freaked out. He, Mrs. May's exact words, she said, his legs got rubbery. <laughs> and he passed out momentarily, and he hit the ground. Oh, God. To Mrs. May's right. It just freaked the hell out of him. Mrs. May is standing there, and this thing hovered. She froze for a second, paralyzed in fear. The other kids kind of froze for a second. It's, this thing scared the hell out of them. And it moved across in front of Mrs. May. It moved in front of Lemon, and it kept going off to the right. And it passed in front of Neil Nunley. And this thing actually moved across the path, and it went down into the gully, the valley to the right, where the craft was sitting off in the distance. Right. Now, this, this thing you're describing, this is the infamous picture, right, that looks like some kind of entity of sorts? Uh, that is the incorrect picture. Okay. Okay, that was uh, kind of like the fable picture. Okay. That was drawn incorrectly. That That's the, the ridiculous picture that's been shown for years. Okay. Uh, being an illustrator, I was able to sit down with the, with the witnesses mm-hmm. and get the stories from them. And I worked with them. We'll get to that in a minute. So what happened is, is this thing is passing by in front of Mrs. May, it's actually splattering out this, like, blackish-gray oil. Oh, God. This thing was a machine, and it was splattering this stuff out, and it hit the front of her, and it hit some of the boys up that were up close to it, the ones that were right almost on top of it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get an idea of how close Kathleen was to this in Lemon, and Mrs. May said she was close to it as a car, and then she paused and she said, a small car. So this thing was approximately 15 feet away from her. And when I, I was playing the devil's advocate with her at first, when during the first interview I did with her, and um, I wanted to know how long she saw this thing and if she got a good look at it. And she basically she says I got a good enough a look at it where I could sit down and we could start drawing pictures and I started drawing pictures with her. Um, she saw this thing basically up close and personal. This thing was almost on top of her, and I remember her saying it was close enough to me that it splattered oil all over the front of my uniform. Yeah, that's she was in a close proximity to it. What was cool about working with Kathleen and her son Freddie. Freddie had reached the gate. Remember I just mentioned that? Mm-hmm. He never crossed over it. He saw the whole thing fold out in front of him. Right, from a distance, yeah. From a distance, which was just, we measured it, it was just over about 30 feet. And so when I was working with Kathleen and working with Freddie, she was giving me the up-close and personal descriptions of what this thing looked like, and she said she can actually feel heat from it. Oh, boy. And when I was doing my illustrations, which you could see online, and it's the cover of the book, Freddie was in the back, and okay. he was there with Tommy and Teddy Neal, so he saw everything unfold. So he gave me descriptions from his point of view. 
No, did her, did she, A, save the uniform, or B, uh, was there any sort of indication from, you know, from what got on her uniform as to, you know, what that stuff was at all? She got back to the house, and she had taken the uniform off, and it, it was splattered. The kids had this, this crap all over their faces, and they had hit on parts of their clothing, too. Mm-hmm. And, well, what happened is when they all turned and ran, yeah. Mrs. May, and this is this is a key point of how scared she was, she said she passed several little boys on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> she said when she reached that gate, the, uh, not the, the wooden fence, mm-hmm. yeah. the second one, just before they got up there, she said she hurtled it and one bound. Wow. And that was between three and four feet high. And um, today, they actually left that the posts up there. And I've been taking video footage for years up there. And it is about three and a half to four foot high. I can actually see where the old nails were, were in there. And, then, you know, I videotaped and took pictures mm-hmm. of all of this. Yeah. So she did scale that. She hurtled it in one shot. And she told me I passed several of the boys on the way down. That's how scared she was back yeah. to the house. And um, the dogs and Freddie and the other kids had taken off. So they kind of had a, a head start, and they had to get back over the fence, the big, the big metal fence. And none of them opened it up. They just kind of like... The little kids crawled through it. <laughs> the adults <laughs> climbed over it. Yeah. They were so scared out of their wits when they saw this thing. They didn't have time. They just climbed over it, through it. They ran through it. The dogs jumped through it. They were climbing. And when they hit that open pasture, they were gone. Yeah. And they just tore ass back to the house. And when they got in there, some of the, the kids had fallen down, and they were cut up, and they were bruised because, you know, they they fell going down the path. And oh, yeah. They were I'm just sure. ramping. Frantic. So Mrs. May's uh, mom was tending to the boys. Her dad was there, and he was he was helping out. And uh, Gene Lemon, he got a real hell of a good whiff of this uh, this sulfur smell. And Kathleen May said he was just throwing his guts up. Oh God! For a long time, and it affected him pretty well. And the the kids were all coughing and gagging and wheezing, so that thing screwed him up pretty bad, Tim. Yeah. And they were trying to to make sense of this thing, and you know you could just imagine the the pandemonium that was going on in that house. And in the meantime, uh, there was a posse that was getting together, and mm-hmm. the word started traveling around throughout the area. And Mrs. May called the local sheriff's department, and. Uh, Sheriff Carr wasn't in. He was around chasing uh, objects that were repeatedly crashing through Flatwoods area and going into an area of Sugar Creek and Frametown down the Elk River approximately 15 to 20 miles away. And what that was was actually another damaged UFO. And we could get back into that a little bit later because all of this is, there's so much that happened that night. But basically, uh, there was supposed to be a rendezvous 
and Flatwoods between two damaged craft. Ah. And what happened is the rendezvous was missed. This is all calculated and figured out, Tim, over years. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> of yeah. all my documentation. <laughs> Yeah. And I was able to speak to some of the locals who were alive back then in the early 90s. I got local newspapers. And when I really got rocking and rolling into this thing, mm -hmm. the people were supporting me like crazy. And they were giving me articles. They still give me articles and mail me stuff. But the locals were, like, giving me stuff and check this out. And so this whole community that was had, had me at bay for a while has opened up to me all of a sudden. So now I have this gigantic puzzle with all of these pieces, and I'm trying to sort it together, I reviewed some of uh, Gray Barker's notes in Ivan Sanderson, and I'm taking all of this information, just throwing it into one pot and trying to make sense out of it. And it did drive Sanderson, and especially Gray Barker, crazy trying to figure out what had happened because there were so many UFOs that were seen over Flatwoods, mm -hmm. And that Braxton County region, uh, they couldn't figure out why so many people were describing different crafts. And these crafts were seen up close and at low levels, Tim. Yeah. And some of them were like 60-foot-long cigar-shaped objects that looked like jets with no wings. There were um, oval-shaped objects. There were round-shaped objects. There was another round-shaped object that had a flat side to it. So you have a variety of different crafts there. And when Barker started looking into this more in depth, he just couldn't figure it out. Why are these people all describing these different crafts when there was only thought to be one that had crashed that had the Flatwoods Monster, the right. occupant of the damaged craft? And it turned out it was a search and rescue mission. And I actually tracked these UFOs coming in to that area. And there were some that came up from the southern part of the United States, and the other ones actually flew over Washington, D.C., and Virginia and flew in west. And every time I would do a book signing, I would go up there, and Stanton told me this was going to happen over the years. People would stand in the corner, and they would wait till the crowd leaves and the autograph people, and they would walk up to me, and these old-timers would walk up to me, and they would start telling me these stories. Yeah. And... It's embedded in my head because I've been doing it for so many years. And these people were lived in Braxton County and other counties, and they were talking about seeing these different crafts flying at low level. And I would just pull my map out, and it's connecting the dots. It was seen here, 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 and here. Yeah. Well, it's and interesting. I okay. traced them back to Washington, D.C. So these craft actually had come in over Washington, D.C. and headed west and went in looking for it. That's just crazy. Now I'm looking at your website here, flatwoodsmonster.com, and there's I see the cover of the of the book, and so that that's what we're seeing, what I'm seeing, what folks can see at flatwoodsmonster.com on the cover of the book. That's more of an accurate depiction of what these kids and uh, Kathleen saw that night, as opposed to the the black and white drawing that's so infamous. Right, right, and the the reason for the nickname of the Green Monster. Mm -hmm. is it was actually, Tim, it was like an aluminum gray color. It mm -hmm. wasn't super shiny, according to the witnesses, but what had happened is this thing, according to the witnesses, says it had some type of an interior uh, lighting system, and it lit up from the inside, and when the, the flashlights from Lemon and May's uh, 
flashlights, when the beams hit this thing, the thing lit up, and it reflected the green from around there. Okay. Yeah. It was an Indian summer, and the leaves hadn't changed yet. So you have all the green around from the shrubbery, from the, the trees, the foliage, the grass, and everything. And it actually reflected the green, plus this thing lit up from the inside. So you have two different light sources. Right, right. Reflecting. What if- that's why they called it the green monster. It wasn't really green. It was an aluminum color. Right, and it wasn't even really a monster. It sounds like this was more, as you said earlier, sort of a hovercraft. This is more yeah, maybe it was, it was actually, like a skate pod or some kind or something like exactly. that. Exactly. You know? It was a craft, and um, there are a million and one different write-ups of what was found, the trace evidence in the field. There were two paths. The locals up there from the get-go called them skid marks. What they actually were, there were two paths. And these paths were parallel, and they ran over to the area where it was pressed down, where the craft had sat down, after locate, relocated into the gully. And when Stan Friedman was there from the first time, the, the 50th anniversary, we went up there. He just stood there, and he was totally amazed, because when you stand there on a property and you look, this thing had landed on the high point in the pasture, and then it relocated, and it was, you know, tucked away in the corner. So it wouldn't be seen because this thing was glowing and flashing. Mm. You don't want to be sitting on a mountaintop. Right, it's kind of high. Glowing. Though. Yeah, so it's tucked away there. Well, what happened is there was one set of tracks coming out from the craft area across this gully. It went up the incline. It went across the path up to the tree. And when this thing departed, it followed like snow print, uh, footprints in the mm-hmm. snow. It followed a parallel path back to the craft. And the path, each one was approximately four foot wide. What this monster was, for lack of better words, was actually a hovercraft. Remember Mrs. May said it hovered a foot to a foot and a half? Right. There were actually rocks that were blown over inside ah. the path and the grass was pushed over, and it was likened to, like, having a gigantic leaf blower and right. walking through this high grass that was, like, knee to waist high, mm-hmm. just walking one direction and then moving back away from the tree again, and that was a parallel path that went. The locals called them skid marks. They were actually, it was actually grass, and this was like a hovercraft vehicle that blew this grass to pieces and shook everything inside of it. Well, looking at this this new drawing of the uh, of the of the of the craft, it's a remarkable the arrogance of the skeptics who say these these people just saw an owl. It's like there's no there's no way you could confuse what what's drawn here with an owl. That's just not even possible. It's amazing. Well, what happened? Uh, the whole myth of the monster came about with the drawing is uh, Mrs. May was contacted by uh, NBC Studios in New York. And there was a show back then called We the People. And uh, Daniel Seymour was the host of the show. It started out as a radio show, then it became a radio and TV show. And they would have different guests on there. Well, this story hit so fast and furious around the United States. Mrs. May was contacted and invited to go to New York. And it was kind of like a talk show. Yeah. And Mrs. May... Ailey Stewart Jr., who was the co-owner of the Braxton Democrat with his dad, and he was uh, he was in the Air Force. He was a, a vet in Korea. 
he got invited, and Gene Lemon. They all went to New York on September 19th. They flew out of Charleston. They went into the city, and they were to be interviewed for that. It was exactly one week later on September 19th. Well, they all go into the studios, and uh, I work with Ailey Stewart very close to he was kind of the backbone of the story because because he broke the story mm-hmm. to the press through the charleston gazette i actually went up to his home when he was alive and i stayed there for a whole weekend about three days and i just hung out with him and we went over the story and i interviewed and i taped them so he kind of said the backbone of the story because his newspaper was the hub right. and they had received telephone calls and um there was correspondence from countries from all over the world it was amazing i have newspaper articles in different languages i have a collection of flatwoods monster articles from around the world and people still send me stuff to tim it's amazing, amazing. yeah that's... how far this story had reached it was even in uh, uh, military paper stars and stripes in the pacific Somebody sent me an article a couple of years ago from that. So this story basically had hit into Japan and Asia and was in Europe just in a few days. It, oh it was God. unbelievable how far-reaching this was. Mrs. May even got a call from uh, a guy who was stationed in uh, Japan. He actually called their house. Jeez. Because when, when this story hit on the, the news wires and it was read in the Stars and Stripes, it was a guy who actually lived in Braxton County, and he read this in the paper, and he heard about it in the media, and he called back there. <laughs> oh, know? my God. So it, it was really far-reaching. So um, Ailey Stewart was a key part of this whole thing, and uh, he was actually the first one there on site after going to the, uh, the May's house. He got the call to go up there from the state police because the sheriff's running around looking for crashed things, you know, going through the mountains. Mm. He's driving around like a nut. And what had happened is it was actually the same object was puddle jumping and crashing throughout Braxton County. So he would get a call to report. He would go to point A. It was already off to point C or something, yeah. Right. (laughs) And he kept going back to the police department and like, oh, guess what? We got another call. So then he's going out to point B and back, and he's driving back and forth, going nuts, going, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. And I actually retraced the sheriff's path. I went up with a friend of mine years ago, and we timed how far it was, because this is all documented from point A to B, to mm-hmm. here, back and forth, and back and forth. And we clocked our mileage, how long it took. So that's when I wrote the book. I figured out the timeline of everything around there of what was going on. Then I interviewed um, another fellow, Jack Davis, who saw the craft coming in from a different part, and he was, an, he was an adult. So I have all these different people coming forward and telling me stuff. So I'm plotting all these points all over, driving all over, putting my story and timeline together. And Stewart had actually received a call from the West Virginia State Police to go up there because the local sheriff wasn't there. The word spread around pretty quick. Now, Stewart was a photojournalist, and he was contacted by the state police because they couldn't get there either. We don't know why they couldn't get there. 
you know, that's one thing that, that Stuart told me when I interviewed him. He says, I don't know why they couldn't get there. All I was told is get your rafts up to the, the May house because something happened up there. The lady called, Mrs. May, and there's a, her and a bunch of kids are hysterical. Go check it out. Right. So he was friends with the police department because he would go to the different scenes with the police. Being a photojournalist, he had a killer camera. So he would take pictures of the crime scenes, accidents. So he was pretty tight with the police. So he actually represented the police department. So he went up there, and he walked into the house. He was like the first person of authority in the house, and he described to me the pandemonium of what was going on in that house. He said it was hysterical. I can't. I can imagine. He, he Not in a funny kids, way, right? <laughs> you know, he said the kids were freaking out and crying. He said Mrs. May, her eyes were all red, and they were tearing and weepy. Some of the kids were bleeding because they had fallen down. They are freaked out. Now, in the meantime, you have all the locals getting together because the crap hit the fans, small little community. They want to know what's going on. So they form a, a posse. Now you have a whole bunch of armed men, including Stewart. And he told me he always carried a handgun and one or two shotguns and a rifle with them, because, you know, when you're covering stories up there, yeah, you go you so many dollars, you don't know what you're going to run into. And Stuart and uh, Mrs. May's dad and a bunch of the local guys were going to go up and check out and see what happened. Here's all of their, their kids are all messed up, and they want to know what the hell's going on back there. And in the meantime, the kids are starting to tell Stuart what they had seen. So, you know, that was kind of disturbing. So Stuart gets together with his posse, and they all go up to the farm. Now they have to get somebody to show them where it happened because now it's pitch dark. Right. And you're walking up into those mountains there, and, and they uh, had a lot of nerve to do that. And they had what Stuart called electric lanterns, and they were like uh, – big giant flashlights like lanterns kind of like uh what they would use in mines and he told me they got the oldest boys together and he said he didn't tell me in, in too much detail but he said one of the boys he grabbed them by the back of the collar and he said he was crying like a whipped pup yeah. He was like a little squirrel girl. This kid was shit in his pants. He did not <laughs> want to go up there. He, right. he he was shaking. Yeah. You can't blame the kid. I wouldn't no, no, go I, back up there. Believe either. me, I'm thirty four years old. If it happened to me, I'd be shit in my pants too. So yeah, no, and, no, and, no harm on that guy. And he said he was crying like a whipped pup. And he basically dragged him up the hill by the scruff of the neck. And, you know, they're trying to comfort this guy. You know, here's like half of the town is going up there with shotguns and, you know, rifles, handguns. So they all work their way up. They go up into the area. And as they got closer up and just past the area where the wooden fence was, they got across there and they started noticing the smell. Okay, yeah. And Stewart knew about the, how gas settled from being in the war, that uh, chemical warfare or whatnot, mm -hmm. that the gas settles. So 
So he told me he got down on his hands and knees, and he was smelling this sulfur crap that was across the whole area. And he said, this is the smell that they were describing. He said he looked down and he scanned his electric lantern to the right, and he saw the big gigantic marks, the two paths I mentioned right, earlier, right, right. going out into that area. And he said as he was walking through the area, they just stayed for a little while because, and this is what he says, we were not inclined to hunt for something in the dark that we didn't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, especially if it came from space. You don't know what you're going to do. Yeah, so, you know, at this point, they don't know. The kids didn't want to stay up there, the older boys, so they kind of hightailed it out of there, and they went back to the house. So um, all these different points of the story, Tim, is what I'm getting at is mm -hmm. I worked with all these individuals. Right, I right. I mean, this is a... interviews from Stuart, from Mrs. May, from Freddie. Um, I had talked to uh, Mr. Shaver. I met um, Freddie's brother, Eddie. His name is Edison. Mm -hmm. uh, I met all these key players. I worked with Jack Davis. He saw the craft coming in. And then I have all the past investigations from the early 50s. And most of those people are dead, so I had to go uh, on a lot of their data. And it just was like one gigantic jigsaw puzzle trying to put everything together. But eventually I did it, and I tightened it up. And since the book was released last year, I found out more information and I'm just piecing it together and piecing it together over the past year, and that's why I have this expanded version that's out. It's probably uh, the most definitive investigation into not only Flatwoods, but probably just about any case. It's Because it, it was so well documented back then, and it got forgotten about. Everybody made fun of it. And as, as I'm going along, and I found more information out since this book came out. Oh, sure. I got more stuff, you know, and it's... Doing shows like this and, and being in the media, um, you know, doing book signings and travel and doing radio shows and, and this and that, people contact me and they're sending me stuff. Give me your address. I got stuff. You wouldn't believe this stuff people send. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like, oh, my God, here we go. Here's more stuff. Here's going to be another revised, revised edition. Right, you know? right. OG Ready. He turns on the rubber, the 2-2 home. Swing and a miss, he struck him out. The 2013 Red Sox are the world champions and Boston strong. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Bedlam at Fenway Park as the Red Sox clinch the World Series at Fenway for the first time in 95 years. From last to best, the Red Sox have won their third world championship in 10 years. Well, it's interesting how the name kind of, in a way, hurts the case in some instances. Because, like, you know, I saw you guys did the Monster Quest show. It's like, this isn't really a monster. It's just got the name monster. But we're talking about more of a straight-up sort of UFO encounter without a creature that we know of, right? Right, right. And, and what happened is, where I jumped off track there a few minutes ago, is when... Mrs. May, uh, Jean Lemon, and Stewart went to New York. They sat down with a sketch artist. Hmm. And Lemon and Mrs. May are trying to describe this thing. Now, you know, these people live in, in central West Virginia. There was only like one or two cars up in the whole area, and Stewart owned one of them. And then there was the police car. 
these people basically lived off the land. This, yeah. It was a poor area. And uh, even when I started going up there in the early early 90s, Tim, it kind of looked the same way as it did back then once you get into those backwoods. Hmm. But eventually the McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chickens, and Dairy Queen start all popping up there. And, and right now, it's, you, know, it, 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 you wouldn't even recognize it. But I was lucky enough back then to have videotaped the whole area before everything got built up. Yeah. And I have video footage of that farm before it got bought out and turned into a dude ranch, and it's all beautiful now. But I have the, the original shots from the early 90s and the, the the tree that had decayed and fallen apart. Yeah. Now, can you – can people – so it sounds like you can't just go there anymore and check it out. No. They, they actually have guards up there on the property now. You'd think they at one, least, one, you know, some enterprise up, would have opened it up to – yeah, there was a, a doctor owns the property, and uh, he he works with us well if we have to get up there and do a TV show. But, you know, I can't blame the guy. You don't want people tromping around your property going up there. We've done some um, different uh, little get-togethers where we had access to go up onto the property. But uh, back to the drawing, Tim, is the sketch artist sat down with Mrs. May and Lemon and um, Stuart was in the background, kind of overseeing this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, what did this thing look like? And these people are trying to describe this structure that looks like nothing they had ever seen, or anybody for that reason <laughs> that right, I know right. of never seen anything like this. And they're trying to describe this thing, and the sketch artist is doing this picture, and Mrs. Mace trying to describe the lower torso to this thing. <clears throat> And how she's trying to describe this, there are actually pipes that are running around the lower circumference. They're vertical pipes. That was part of the exhaust. That's where the gas was shooting out. It was a hovercraft, Mm. and that's why the thing lifted. The original drawing shows a representation of the drop cast shadow, and that is correct because if you look at the original picture, you see it floating in the shadow underneath that was representing this thing off the ground. But what Mrs. May was trying to get across to this guy, and it just missed, she was trying to describe these big pipes around the lower torso, and they reminded her of the drapes hanging in her living room. Right. I was going to say, it looks like something wearing a dress or a right, which were librarian. <laughs> well, yeah, which were rolled. When I talked with Kathleen, she told me, no, it was metallic. It wasn't cloth, but she was trying to give something, you know, as close to what she could recognize this as. And when I was working with Freddie and doing all the thumbnails and comprehensive sketches, I remember sitting in his living room in Gassaway, and he said what Mother was trying to describe were pipes. And he held his arm out. And he said they were about as thick as my arm, my forearm. He said, and they were metallic too. And he said they went around the whole lower circumference. He said they were about as thick as a fireman's hose. And they were all spaced equally around the lower portion. From the waist up, this thing had actually tapered to the shoulders. Um, On location at the site, Freddie actually took me step by step we started out at the school playground and some of this can be seen on the youtube um interview and 
we went from the school playground up to Depot Street, up to the house, and we walked the exact path step-by-step with my cameras. And I videotaped them along the way. That's how I was able to tighten this whole timeline up and, and series of events of what happened. Right. was because Freddie walked with me, actually several times. And Freddie stood on site where the tree was, where he saw his mother and Gene and, and the older boys up front. And he said this thing was about four feet across at the base. And it tapered. And at the shoulder area... It was about three feet wide. Now, what the original sketch artist had drawn is like this hooded cape thing going over the top that looked like an ace of spades. Freddie said it wasn't a hood. And Kathleen told me also, they said it was an outer helmet. Hmm. And the face of the monster was not a face. It was an inner helmet. And the head actually sat on this collar that was a couple inches high, so it was actually rotating around, almost like a crystal ball sitting on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm looking and, at the uh, at the picture uh, from your from your book, and our, our good buddy Alfred Lemberg has posted a, a picture also in the chat room of it. So oh, cool. Yeah, so folks listening live can follow along. It's, and and Freddie and Kathleen both told me about the size of the eyes. Now, they weren't eyes, but Freddie really was adamant about, he said, Frank, he said they were portholes. The press reported them as eyes of bloodshot eyes, and the story just got carried away. Right, right, starting to get more and more. The whole thing was a joke, but they were portholes, and when Mrs. May and... Um, Gene had hit this thing with the beams of light. It lit up. And one of the first times I interviewed Kathleen, I said, so did this thing actually react to you like it was intelligently controlled? Right, I was just going to ask you that, yeah. And Mrs. May said, yes, it responded to me. The second we hit that thing with the beams, it lit up from the inside. Now, what happened is... There were beams of light that were actually forced out of the portholes. They weren't laser beams, you know. They weren't Buck Rogers laser beams that shot out. It was like light came up inside. Forced light came out of it. And one time, uh, Freddie told me, he says, it kind of was like looking at a car, all the lights inside your car at night, how they come out. You know, the the dashboard right, displays right. and the yeah. digital. He says it kind of lit up like that from the inside. And these beams, they were actually weak. They went over the tops of their heads because this thing was twice the size of them. And one of the times up there I interviewed Freddie, he said, looking at this thing, you could tell from the reflections he said there was like a plate glass window in front of it. There was like a facade that was attached to the helmet with this helmet, the outer helmet with the inner helmet. And it was kind of looking like at a fighter pilot sitting in the, in the, the cockpit of his jet mm. now, do you wearing think, his helmet. Based on all your research, do you think this was sort of like an escape pod or maybe a beacon to call for help with people inside uh what's your what's your sort of take on what this this uh for lack of a better term craft uh was yeah it was like a miniature hovercraft 
Uh, Freddie told me that this thing to him was like a spacesuit. He said, Frank, this thing was a spacesuit. It was some type of a small mobile craft, and from what Mrs. May said, this thing reacted to her. Um, Freddie believed that there was possibly something inside of it that was controlling this thing. Yeah, like maybe the thing was uh, the, the the main craft was damaged, so they had to, they kind of want to get out of there and figure right, out what right. to do. And, that's and they can't just we... walk around on Earth because they're you know presumably right. from another yeah, world. It's, so. it's a hovercraft, and um, <clears throat> you know then we go back to what had happened six weeks prior, is when we had the uh, where the Air Force had admitted with the flying saucers, this is the year of the saucers, summer of the saucers. They were seen just about every day over over the United States. If you can't talk them down, shoot them down. Right. That's how this all connects. That's the amazing right. stuff. Before we get to that, I just want to give you kudos. First of all, I... You know, I, my style of show is when, when we got something really compelling like this, I just step back and let, let the expert go. And i got to give you credit, though, man, because I think, I know, without your work, this thing would have been lost to the sands of time, this whole story. Uh, you know. And it's amazing, too, Tim, because the answers are all out there. Yeah. It just took, a, you know, it took 20 years of my life. It ate it up, but it was, you know, it's interesting. I would do it over again, but everything is out there. I had no idea how big this story was back then. I read in a couple places it was estimated. Now, Flatwoods is a town of 300 people back then. Right now, there's about 400 there. It's a little community. That's tiny, yeah. Uh, there was approximately a guesstimate within four to six weeks after 10,000 people went there. Oh, my God. That's a lot of people. And Mrs. May was getting phone calls 24 hours a day from around the world. Well, you've got to give dubious credit then, I guess, to the powers that be, because if not, like I said, if not for you, the story would have been lost to the sands of time. So they did a pretty good job of, uh, you know, smothering the story. Oh, absolutely. It's it's unbelievable. You know, intelligence was up there. You know, they actually went up there. They were all, um, you know, undercover. They were incognito. And I used a lot of Donald Kehoe's original um, quotes from his investigation and looking into the case. He did more of a governmental... Um, his research was into right, that, right. and from the higher up, from the big boys in, in the Pentagon, and in a blue book, right down. And he talks in his works how he was told through his sources at the Pentagon that there was a couple guys up there who posed as reporters. And then when I interviewed Mrs. May, she told me, and she never read Keo's book. She didn't even know who Donald Keo was. Yeah, yeah. You know, she didn't know who Ed Rupelt was. You know, it's. Hmm. That's, you know, like way beyond. They had no idea how much this was covered. And at one point when I showed Mrs. May my two-pound book with uh, <laughs> Project Blue Book, yeah, and I flipped open a page and I told her about how uh, Chop had, at the, at the Pentagon had told Kehoe it was probably an owl in a tree and all of that kind of crazy stuff. Mrs. May got upset, and she was really disappointed because she didn't know all of this stuff. And I said, Kathleen, this was heavily documented, and look at this. And it was called a meteor. The craft is called a meteor. 
And what I did is I worked outside of the Flatwoods area in my research, and I just kept expanding, like concentric circles. Yeah. Flatwoods was the bullseye. I kept expanding out, Tim. And I eventually found um, 116 locations throughout the United States where these things had flown and crash-landed. There was four damaged crafts that came in over the United States that night. That night? That night. And the majority of them were within a short time, within about a half an hour. And they crash-landed through the whole United States. I pinpointed every single location My and God. documented every location. If you go on to um, flatwoodsmonster.com, you can see the master map that I worked with, and you can see the flight path trajectories. And I worked with different people over the years. Um, I didn't do this on my own. I didn't figure all of this out on my own. I don't have a military background. But by working with military people, I've worked with retired sheriffs and deputy sheriffs and cops and military people. We figured this whole thing out. And what it basically was was a search and rescue mission. Yeah. These things came in looking for it. And the cool part about it is, Tim, the majority of the documentation was right in Project Blue Book, and nobody saw it. It was hidden in plain sight. And Nobody you know, saw it from the research community, presumably, but the, uh, the, right. there the was powers so much that be probably kind of figured out what was going on. Yeah, and I don't even know if they know. Hmm. That's true. Yeah, because they might there was be so much going like, on. I think <laughs> yeah. it would have taken them over twenty years to figure out what was going on. You know, because I actually went to Tennessee. There was a, a outside the Kingsport area in Arcadia. There was a UFO that had crashed down there, and I went into that area and documented that. There was three of them that came over the eastern seaboard. Um, they were approximately ninety miles off the uh, coast of the United States and that is where the origin point was from and one object that was flown that was damaged it flew down towards the um, southwest and it was actually heading towards Oak Ridge National Laboratory and it flew through the no-fly zone uh, Oak Ridge the second one had flown in the other direction and it headed northwest and this object flew towards Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Oh, boy. And it actually stopped short of wright Path, turned and redirected, and landed up in the West Virginia Panhandle, and en route to going up there, nearly collided with two passenger planes. My God. So it's all documented. It's all pieced together. The third object, Tim, flew straight down the middle, and it flew over Washington, D.C., and along its flight path trajectory, when it hit over the eastern seaboard and came in over Washington, it was actually flying at certain points at treetop level with pieces flying off of it and exploding. Jeez. And as it flew over D.C., all of this documentation is right in Blue Book. I couldn't believe what I was reading. So what does it and, say in Blue Book? That these, essentially what you're telling me, that these unknown craft were flying... This thing came in, and it was called the Flame Over Washington. And it was actually reported on September 13th in the New York Times, called the Flame Over Washington. And when this object flew over D.C., um, this was about 7 o'clock. There's people out. 
driving around in their cars and convertibles. There's people walking their kids in strollers, walking their dogs that are walking around Washington area. And here comes this thing flying just about a treetop level across Washington. It was seen by hundreds of people. It wasn't a little isolated incident. Well, what happened is when this thing flew over Washington, headed west, there was a series of UFOs that ascended, um, I'm sorry, descended Mm. into the area of Washington, Virginia, and Maryland. And these UFOs formed a perimeter, an aerial perimeter, as they descended down over those three states, and they followed it west. Yeah. They were blocking for it. It's all in blue book. The answers are, are right there. Nobody ever pieced it together. I actually did a handmade map that was about eight feet wide by about six feet, and I got maps of Washington. I worked a lot over Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University here in Daytona. I live right down the street from it by the racetrack. And I spent years going over to Riddle, getting maps out and working with different people. And Yeah, I'm I, looking at one of these maps on uh, Paratopia area. It's amazing. It's, uh, and the detail involved. You've, I can't... I gotta, I gotta stop you here, man. I'm just amazed. Uh, you're dedicated to this stuff, uh, to this, this case and this story. It's amazing. So what these UFOs did is they followed the damaged one until it reached over west into the Virginia area, and there was actually uh, a pilot in a plane that flew real close to this thing and saw this fiery object flying by over Front Royal Virginia. Well, after. This thing got outside of Washington, D.C., over Virginia, heading west. It took a half an hour for it. From the point it flew over Washington, it flew about 200 miles west. It hit northern Braxton County in a little community called Burnsville. When it hit Burnsville, it redirected and headed south. And that's where it flew all the way further deeper into Braxton County until it hit the center of uh, Flatwoods, turned, and it landed up on the hill. It's pinpointed all across the country. The other UFOs had ascended back up into the sky. They went into the northern panhandle area where the other one had went down. They dropped out of the sky, Tim, for two hours looking for the other one that went down. And that is documented very heavily in the press. And the Flatwoods Monster case, all the articles did not appear right off of the bat the following day because the story went in too late. Hmm. When I started looking at the uh, following day, the event happened on September 13th, when I started looking into the, the following day's reports, I have all of these different articles about UFO scene and fireballs and stuff crashing around the United States. And I'm like, this is nuts. So that's what you're seeing there is those 116 locations on that master map where the UFOs flew, and they actually flew into the panhandle area, and they were flying and landing and touching down in the area of Pittsburgh, um, Eastern Ohio, and that section up around Wheeling, where the thing went down, 
and they were just dropping out of the sky for two hours. And the people were panicking. I can imagine. This is the summer of the saucers, and you have articles, you know, in that whole region up there talking about uh, meteor showers. <laughs> one of the one of the objects in the wheeling area actually touched down between the radio towers on top of a hill and landed and then ascended and took off again, just like a meteor would do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now let's let's connect all this to the to the Air War Fifty Two because that's what this is all about in a big way. You know, the it sounds like the the events of the Flatwood Monster case were sort of the pinnacle of this shoot them down uh, spree, if you will, right? Right. So I guess, you know, uh, now, now just bear with me, because uh, we're, we're going to have Alfred calling in in a few moments. But, okay. Um, you know, give me sort of a short thumbnail on this on this shoot-down order. I mean, what have you uncovered on this, and how extensive was this? You know, how how was this a one-off sort of thing? Was this a, a rare occurrence, or was this like an ongoing, frequent situation where pilots were encountering UFOs and trying to shoot like, them? Like, we talked right before we went on the air, there, were, there was something that really tipped it all off when I was starting to read through um, Ed Ruppelt's book, mm-hmm. the report on, on identifying objects. Right. It uh, came out in 1956, and there was a, another edition of it later. But uh, it was documented, and... I might as well read the quote straight out here instead of mm-hmm. just trying to edit it. <laughs> this is what Ruppelt said in his book. Other assorted historians point out that normally the UFOs are peaceful. Gorman and Mantell, those are two other cases, just got too inquisitive. They just weren't ready to be observed closely. If the Air Force hadn't slapped down the security lid, these writers might have not reached this conclusion about being peaceful, there have been other and more lurid duels of death. Now, that's when the red flags went up, and I called Stanton Friedman up. I said, Stanton, you read this book. When's the last time you read it? And he said, it's been years. I said, do you remember this quote in there? And he says, not really. That was what we talked, what you played at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. So we started looking into this a little bit deeper. Stanton started looking into it. He started making phone calls and get connections. And, you know, before you know it, we have all of this data and everything I could get my hands on. I have a massive UFO library with uh, periodicals, newsletters. I have a storage unit filled with thousands of pieces, Tim. Okay. I don't have a couple it's massive. I can, Im- I can imagine. I started oh, yeah. going through this stuff, and I started pulling out different different quotes and different people who had written about this over the years. And then I started, I actually went over to a couple of local colleges here, and I started looking through the New York Times. I wanted to see if I can find anything else out about this quote. And I started finding all these articles about missing pilots. And to make a long story short, what I did not shoot them down, I went between 1951 and 56, and I wrote a chapter in there called The, the Six Deadly Years. Yeah. And between 51 and 56, the New York Times was chock full of all these mysterious disappearances and screwy-ass crashes with inter- only intercepted jets. No mid-air collisions, 
no uh, no takeoffs, no landings. All of these things happened up in the air, and pilots were disappearing all over the United States. And during that time, that is when I kept looking further, and I found the International News Service report from Tuesday, uh, July 29th. Air Force orders jet pilots to shoot down flying saucers if they refuse to land. And the quote is, Lieutenant Monsell Mons, information officer, stated the jet pilots are and have been under orders to investigate, investigate unidentified objects and to shoot them down if they can't talk them down. <laughs> and that's just one of them. I just came across another recent article, Pilots Ordered to Shoot Down Saucers in Range. It's an international news service uh, story, and it's from the Charleston Gazette. Uh, we have the San Francisco Examiner in California, jets on 24-hour uh, alert to shoot down saucers. And the further I look into this, the more I'm finding, the more I'm finding. Then we're finding out all about all these missing pilots. And Kehoe was looking into this very uh, in-depth yeah. back in the early 50s. And he, he's got a lot of quotes about it. So what I did is I pulled all of these quotes together. I pulled all my statistics together, and from my New York Times case study, which is, I basically started post-World War II and went all the way up to 1959. This took years to do, and 51 to 56 had the most accidents. Yeah. And according to the New York Times, there was um, 205 fighter aircraft accidents where interceptors were destroyed. My God. And um, and that's just a fraction of what actually was occurring. Yeah, that's just and, what we know about. Right. That's just what was reported. And what I noticed is when, I, when all of these things were starting to happen, there would be big front-page articles. Jets would mysteriously crash into towns and cities. And, I mean, people were getting killed. Little kids are in the backyard playing. It, it was horrible shit. The, the gasoline is spraying and burning little kids. Oh, gee. I mean, it's nutty. Just planes dropping out of the sky. And they they were front page. Then as I started going on, as I got closer to 56, there was still a lot of stuff going on. But the, they would be stuck in the back of the underwear uh, at <laughs> the gimbals at the end of the paper. Yeah. And it would be like a two or three little liner. And I'm like, but it started out with these big big articles and then I started cross-referencing through all of my data and blue book I mean anything I could get my hands on I was cross-referencing and I had these massive charts and all my data together and a lot of these locations where the jets were going down and vanishing there were mm -hmm. also flying saucers seen in the area and this is what I put together. Since then, I have also been working on and what I call my master book. I put together a book, and it's called Duels of Death. And I have every single thing that happened to do with jets and UFOs documented for a 10-year period, Tim. Michael. And I have that book sitting on the back burner. The Shoot Them Down book is just 52. I cover a 10-year period 
from 47 to 57 of everything. It's a massive book. That's amazing. Um, and, let me, let and, me just jump in here because we got Alfred on the line. I've okay, had him on great. for like five minutes, so I want to bring him okay. in here. All right. Alfred, what's going on, buddy? We got you in on the conversation now. Okay, real good. Do I have to uh, turn off anything over here? I can just uh, leave it the way it is. Are we cool? I suppose so. If you got if you got the show playing, you can shut it off in the background because now you're part of the show, so you don't need to listen. You're, you're living the experience. Hey, yeah, how you doing? Loud and clear. Pretty good, buddy. Yeah, Art Bell is always saying, "Turn off your radio," and I was wondering if I had to do that over here. Hey, real quick and dirty, because I know you guys want to get on with some other. You know, going back to the, the very beginning when this the uh, the Flatwoods affair initially started to kick off and everything, it's it's been bedunked. Uh, debunked and very uh, uh, religiously, uh, vociferously and nastily debunked by persons of the caliber of, say, Dr. Immaterial Joe Nichols, for instance, right? <laughs> and, they're, yeah. and, they're, and, and they're all very fond of, uh, you know, coming up with these different, different excuses of, of what it could have been, like, uh, like, like a, a geological gas in the area because of the makeup and the coal stratas of West Virginia, this, that, and the other thing. And, and another one is seasonal plants that made the kids sick and made them see funny things. And then, you know, finally that last one, which was a demonstration that the people of Flatwoods who had been living with the flora, the flora and fauna of that area for, oh, many hundreds of years probably, probably knew, you know, something about owls and what they're supposed to look like, you know? Yeah. So all of that is just uh, all of, all of the, the discussions about debunking the whole Flatwoods affair on those uh, scores have, have uh, been proven completely ridiculous. A, a, a star, a, a MUFON star team, uh, geologists went up and, and checked out for uh, uh, the the difficulty the with, the, with the yeah the, the geology in the area, and gave it a clean bill of health. Said you know there's uh, there's not the, the kind of necessary formation in that area that would uh, make gas and what have you. But what we have to remember is that whatever occurred, whatever's true, it never happened before, and then it never happened again. So, you know, what's up with that? You know, there really had to be something going on up there. Uh, yeah. Frank, uh, Frank, Frank, Frank talks about, uh, you know, tracking the UFOs and that he was very assiduous. And you see the picture of the map where the UFOs are tracked and the listener might ask the question like, hey, uh, you know, what's, uh, how, how do you do that? What, you know, what's the function of tracking UFOs and, and putting them on the map and everything? And, and simply, all it was was... Uh, from from uh, from from named reports and official reports and Project Blue Book, you get you get time signatures, you get bona fide uh, uh, witnesses, first person witnesses who who witness these things, and you are able to establish them to a, a timeline and see which way these aircraft are going and and what have you. But uh, uh, I want to finish up here real quickly by by saying that. Everybody needs to remember that that that, uh, and it's too it's too easy to to think that the Flatwoods affair might have been a an isolated incident. That okay, it happened once to some kids and uh, some people up there in the hills of West Virginia, and it doesn't you know account for much. But what everybody has to remember is that first we had the summer of saucers in June, July, and August. And the Summer of Saucers was the biggest flap, UFO flap in United States history. On top of that, 
the United States government, I would assume, decides that they want one of those puppies, and they issue the military orders to shoot them down. And it's pretty much shoot on sight. There's a little codicil in there about, uh, it'll, if, if, they, you know, if we can't talk them down, then we'll have to shoot them down. No, they, all that's for the <laughs> lawyers. All that's for the lawyers. Right. Yeah. All of that's for the lawyers. <laughs> It, it was it was shoot them down. Now, following that, the shoot down orders, we have September 12th rolls around where we have 21 and a half continuous hours of distressed UFOs flying around, landing, taking off, smoking, uh, very acrid, smelly smokes, uh, making sounds in the air like they're distressed. And then following that, you have Flatwoods, the end of the story. And uh, none dare call it uh, an undeclared secret war with E.T., but, uh, you know, what's it sound like to you? Over to you, Frank. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and, and absolutely. What, what's interesting about it, too, uh, I'm not going to let you go just yet, Alfred, so uh, let me know when you got a bail on me. But, uh, but what's, what's interesting, too, there is um, that, you know, you hear about the stories of the shoot. You know, I've always heard the shoot them down stuff, but the you always kind of think that I'd always thought, that it was sort of a one-sided affair, that we, we couldn't handle the UFOs, and that's why we lost all these pilots. But based on what we're learning here tonight and what we've learned from Frank's research, that, that clearly we were, getting our own, we were getting shots in. We were winning small skirmishes, apparently, if, if there were these UFOs going down. Yeah, and then when you throw into the mix um, what the United States had, but what the government had developed, was um, the F-94C Starfire. And that uh, had FF, uh, the AR rockets, the folding fin aerial rockets. They were 2.75-inch rockets. They had a 7.5-pound warhead. And they were about 4 feet in length. They weighed about close to 20 pounds. And these babies traveled at 2,500 feet per second. And add that on to a jet flying, you know, over 600 miles an hour, which was about their, their capabilities back then, uh, we also had the F-86D Saber Dog, and that carried 24 rockets in a lower body in an elevator. Um, it was, you know, it would lower down, it would fire the rockets out, and the Navy had the F-7U3 Cutlass, and that carried the rockets in a pod. We had the capability, and we were using them, chasing flying saucers and shooting at them with rockets. Now, that would have been a nice surprise to UFOs who were used to dodging bullets because we were shooting at them. This is documented. Yeah. I have uh, several cases pulled out and put aside. I could give them to you, but I'd have to dig through all my notes, where it's documented how they were chasing and firing at these UFOs. And this is all in Project Blue Book. Yeah. So what we have here is these three rocket-bearing jets chasing flying saucers and UFOs, these particular UFOs came in over the eastern seaboard. Three of them were damaged. I have even went to the extent where I have taken these different objects and I figured out their flight paths and have the exact locations where they touched down. We had the one that went down in Tennessee, the one that flew over Baltimore and crash-landed up in the West Virginia panhandle, the one that went over Washington and crash-landed in Flatwoods. Then we have one that came up from North Carolina. The one that came up from North Carolina and route from Florida actually crashed four times. The one over Washington crashed two times. 
the one I flew over Baltimore five times, and the Tennessee one crashed two times. Jeez. So we have four damaged objects where I pinpointed along their flight path trajectories 13 landings. I don't want to run through all of them now, yeah, but yeah, yeah. what we also have, too, is what I told you earlier, where these UFOs were dropping out of the sky for two hours up in the Pittsburgh, Eastern Ohio, and Wheeling, West yeah. Virginia area. They called it a meteor shower. There were actually eight landing sites where those things were touching down and dropping in people's backyards and, and searching where that one went down. There was one landing site in West Virginia, six in Ohio, and one in Pennsylvania. And that was the story I told you where one dropped down between the radio transmitter yeah. towers yeah, and then yeah. took off. This thing, these things were going on all over the place. And I was able to establish that there was 25 different UFOs seen, as Alfred mentioned, 21 hours plus of sustained sightings on September 12th, 25 different craft. And I was able to differentiate by using the Blue Book documents and from the uh, tentative observers, witness questionnaires yeah. of what these things look like. They did drawings. Well, I did the same thing, except I put them into, uh, into order. And there was all different shaped objects. There were saucers seen, the round-shaped objects, the ones that um, were jet-shaped objects, like cigar-shaped objects. And once you have a certain shape craft and you see it over here over Washington then it's seen over Virginia then it's seen here and I tracked them going into Flatwoods this was a massive search and rescue operation now Alfred while I still have you here uh, you know with the risk of embarrassing Frank for uh, giving him too many kudos for his fine work I think it's important to stress here the importance that there's still a lot of good information that we can dig out of these old cases, you know, as opposed to storming the gates of Congress in a futile attempt to uh, get the government to reveal all of the UFO secrets. Uh, if we circle back and look at what information that we have available, clearly Frank has demonstrated that there is great stuff that can be gleaned from this information of the past that maybe people need to take a better look at, right? In, in idle, casual readings, for instance, there is a much... Uh, uh, divested and, and uh, completely uh, discredited case called the Desvergers case. And roughly what we're talking about, you'll remember about the Boy Scout in uh, Florida, or Boy Scout leader in Florida who had a raft of Boy Scouts with him and they're driving home and he, they uh, see something from the inside of the car and he stops the car to run over the Boy Scout leader, Desvergers. Uh, what's his mm -hmm. first name, Frank? Yeah, the West Palm Beach story. Right. Yeah, West Palm Beach. Yeah, that was uh, in August, just a few weeks before the Flatwoods case. Yeah, but see, the point is, is that that case was discredited until Frank found it in Blue Book, un in, you know, unexplicably after 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 it was completely destroyed and washed away, and found the link up with the Flatwoods affair giving uh, credibility to both cases because you see Desvergers, the, the Desvergers case had interest from, uh, from Blue Book the, the same way and, and in the exact same fashion that uh, they did for the Flatwoods case. The only problem with the Desvergers case, the true, but the only problem with the Desvergers case, remember, is that Desvergers thought he saw occupants in the... Uh, in the, in the craft that he saw, so naturally, you know, during that time frame, uh, they didn't touch reports like that where people were actually seeing beings. Right, right. 
Yeah. But it's a, it's amazing that there's such good stuff still out there that people, uh, you know, that has fallen through to the sands of time, if not for the work of guys like Frank. So kudos to Frank. Yeah. Kudos well, to you, when man. you look, yeah, when you look, you find. And 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 something <laughs> hey, else too. Yeah. Uh, going going back uh, to Flatwoods for a second, there was a small mention of uh, Colonel Dale Levitt and and the uh, the uh, uh, what he had contributed to the affair and what was going on with him. And uh, the reason I bring him up again is that Colonel Levitt interviewed on tape, and you get his his complete story. I mean, uh, you know, the guy was there was a bona fide. Uh, United States Army uh, uh, hero, hero of the Second World War, right? And he took a, a, a pretty heavy battalion of uh, people up there into the, the hills uh, along about the uh, September 12th time frame. The point being is that you don't move a, a, a unit of that size or any unit into an guys. area, <laughs> right, 180 guys based on a, you know, a couple of kids seeing ghosts up in the hills, you know what I'm saying? Right, exactly. It, it's just all of, it's, all of it's so completely nuts and so, so completely uh, 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 ignored and ignored when you have a situation where, and I don't, I don't mean this to, to belittle it at all, uh, and it might sound like I'm, I'm getting ready to head off into that direction. I am not, but I'm talking about soldiers missing in action, just the way they were lost in Vietnam, just the way they're lost in Afghanistan, just the way they're lost in, uh, in Iraq. Missing in action, soldiers, uh, you know, guys that were, that were uh, ordered into, the, into dark, stormy skies to, to battle UFOs. It, it, it boggles the mind. It really does. It's amazing that it happened. It's amazing that it's been covered up for so long. Um, you know, it's just, it's just absolutely remarkable. It's scary that they can get away with covering it up for so long. So. Well, what I have here, what Alfred's talking about, and I'm just going to take a, a minute or so to run through this, Tim. Okay, should we let uh, Alfred go? You want to you head no, out, because, Alfred? No, it would okay. be cool if Alfred hangs out because this is he's the one that brought this point up. Okay, we got what you. What I found in the New York Times is I was going through, I found the different uh, veteran uh, combat fighters, and I found that there was nine cases right off the bat where these veteran combat fighters disappeared into thin air or they crashed under mysterious circumstances. I'm going to run by from the top to the bottom how many combat missions these guys had. Mm -hmm. One had 182, one had 130, 105, 100, 185, 81, 70, and 32. Now those are the, the top nine guys as reported in the New York Times. That's nine guys who died, total 885 combat missions. That was between World War II and Korea. Some of them fought in both. 885 between nine guys, and they vanished into thin air or they crashed under bullshit circumstances. All of this was covered up. And in the majority of these cases, we have UFOs and saucers seen in the same area. That's what I was able to piece together. And out of that crew there, we have four aces. One was a World War II ace. Uh, then we have another World War II ace, a World War II ace, and we have a Korean ace uh, who had uh, 10 MiGs and 328 combat hours. 
these guys are just disappearing in a thin air and crashing. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a couple hundred of these cases. And when you look further into it, and it would take a lifetime. There was thousands of these. It's amazing. I mean, we've gone an hour and 50 minutes, and I feel like we've only scratched the surface on both of these stories. So I've already told Alfred uh, off the air, we're going to, the three of us are going to do a taped conversation sometime in the future to continue this, because mm-hmm. there's so much to talk about. It's really, it's just mind-boggling, uh, as, as you said, the, 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 the breadth of this, of this, uh, this wave of, this secret war. It really was a secret war. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's all documented. It's all documented. Yeah. In the uh, in not only in the Blue Book uh, archives, but also in your uh, in in Shoot Them Down, right? Right, right, and and it's also been documented going back into the early uh, works of Donald Keogh and Stringfield. Those guys had touched on it. They started the ball rolling, and I have all of their old books and their all old, all of their works, and and that's what kind of put it together. But the Laura Duels of Death quote by Rupelt is what really triggered this off. Yeah, lurid duels of death. That, there have uh, been other more <laughs> and lurid duels of death. That's a vivid language. Mm-hmm. Um, Alfred, the website for you is uh, alienview.net, right, buddy? Uh, yes, and from there you can find uh, alienview.blogspot.com, I believe. Yeah. yeah. There you go. All right. At any rate, Bold. yeah. Well, we're right up against the uh, against the end here. So, thank you, uh, Alfred, for calling in and joining. And like I said, we're going to do a longer version of this uh, of this uh, triumvirate of uh, folks talking. Me, you, and Look, Frank. So, looking forward to it, Tim. And we'll see you later, Frank. Okay. Thanks, Al. Have a good night. Out here. Have a good night, buddy. Now, Frank, uh, tell me a little bit about what you have coming up. Uh, I, I didn't mean, I, as I said to Alfred here on the private chat, I wasn't trying, wasn't trying to boot him. I was kind of keeping an eye out on his phone bill. I don't <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and 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 as I said, yeah, we're right up against the. Uh, we're, we're getting close to the hour here. So what, what what's the time frame? I guess on the book, uh, this master book that you're working on. Well, the th- the book is basically finished, and uh, I've, I just finished putting out uh, the, the expanded version of the, the Braxton County Monster, so I have that under wraps. And uh, last month I flew out to Hollywood, and I was interviewed for the movie uh, 701 The Movie. It's mm-hmm. a docudrama that's going to be released in uh, the spring of next year, so I went out to Hollywood for a few days, and I was interviewed and I met a, a bunch of the key players, Fox and Torme and Inez Romero. And from what I understand, there was uh, over 40 people interviewed. And from what I was told, this is probably going to be the best UFO documentary slash docudrama ever made. They went to the end of the earth, and there were people there from all over the world that were flown in for this. Hmm. I came in towards... The end, I was one of the last persons interviewed, and I did about a two-hour interview. And I may be going back out there because they're going to be doing a reenactment because this group of people is really on the ball. They want to get this thing right, unlike what the Monster Quest thing turned out to be. Yeah, I, didn't even, I don't even want to get into that. Next time we yeah. talk, we'll get into that because that, yeah. that, I, I watched a little bit of that on YouTube today, and that was a, a cluster F. So. Yeah, and, and what happened with that is, is Alfred uh, went up to West Virginia, and I basically got to handpick my team, 
and I picked Stanton Friedman. I got one of the guys from the, the star team out of Pennsylvania. John Bainbridge came in, and Stanton, we had everybody there. We had, like, a great team. We did our jobs. We did, I don't even know how many hours a shoot. We were up in the mountains. We were going about 16, 18 hours a day. And I never heard another word. And they never worked with me after they did the shoot. And when I saw the the, the finished product on TV, I saw it when everybody else did. I almost fell over. Yeah. I'm like, I can't believe they did this after the work we, we did. I actually was there in the studio with Alfred where we did the shoot uh, right after my interview. And the cutaway shots that you see during that show, during that same sequence, what we did, Tim, is they zoomed in and I actually went step-by-step step across my master map. Nice. And I showed everything of what happened because the official government explanation for all of these sightings is it was a meteor. And I showed on a map they never even used it. And that <laughs> meteor was seen, the the explanation through Blue Book was it was seen for at a, a, a dur- an endurance of about six to seven seconds. Yeah where when it flew over Washington, it took about a half an hour to fly to Flatwoods. It was over Washington about 7 o'clock and nearly 7.30. So it took a half an hour. The thing was flying about 400 miles an hour, not 26 miles per second. And that's what it was said to have flying. That meteor was going pretty quick. It wasn't a meteor at all. And there was no meteor records anywhere on planet Earth about meteors or meteor showers on September 12:52, except in Blue Book. That's just uh, unbelievable. It's unbelievable stuff. We're, uh, this is one of the downsides of the live show. We're running out of time. So uh, beyond, uh, I don't think I got. I don't think I heard exactly when. What's your timetable on the uh, the master book with the 10 year? Um, I, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I just got this thing out of the way, you know, in, in California. And yeah, yeah, I was yeah. working with the people out there, so this is going to be my next focus is this book, hopefully soon. Hopefully nice. soon, Tim. Nice, nice, nice. We're Sounds good. On it. Yeah, I can imagine you probably want to <laughs> catch your breath a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it was a good trip, though. I'm impressed. Uh, you know, I kind of saw everything from the inside out there and for that California trip. And there's some impressive cases and some really cool people involved in this thing. And where can folks get the new book, the uh, the Braxton County Monster Updated and Revised Edition? Is that through Amazon um, or uh, actually Lulu Shop? So just go to flatwoodsmonster.com. Right? Yeah, go to flatwoodsmonster.com. And then if you actually, when you come down a few inches on there, you can actually see the YouTube um piece that I put together. It's a 37-minute long documentary, and some of the, the key people that I interviewed, Mrs. May and, and Colonel Levitt and Freddie May, you'll actually see highlights of the actual interviews when I taped them, and it's, it looks pretty good. It's a nice little piece. Nice. And uh, that's a link right on the website, too, in the book. You can get the book there. All right. All right. It sounds like this thing continues to grow, continues to... Uh expand you're getting more and more information so uh i'm gonna obviously it's gonna it took us way too long to get you on the show and you know as i said this is one of the rare times where we have the limitations of the live show because i feel like we can keep talking for quite some time and yeah and uh we will do so in the future we will definitely have you back on the show i want to get you and alfred together for a show together and, and talk about this as well 
Well, I yeah, can't... we could keep going. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I can't give you enough credit. Uh, I, I've just kind of stepped out of the way and just enjoyed listening to this stuff because it was just amazing. i got to give you just huge props, Frank, for, for doing the legwork on this and dedicating Thanks, so much time. I mean, yeah, if you really, yeah. had more guys like you, we might have cracked this case a long time ago. Yeah, and, and I've said it for years. If the UFO community stuck together as tight as the skeptics have, this thing would have been solved years ago. But, you know, the UFO community isn't uh, as tight in a lot of aspects as you would think. Everybody's looking for the smoking gun and instead of working together as a team. You know, it's, it's a shame. Exactly. If our people work together like the skeptics do bashing everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this thing would have been solved a long time ago, but I'm, I'm starting to see that happening. You know, a lot of the people are starting to work together. Well, Stan Friedman has been great working with me on this. Case. Oh, Stan's the man. Stan is, you know, he, he is the, he's just, uh, you know, he's an icon. So Yeah, yeah, and guys like Alfred Lumberg, you know, hats off to Alfred. Alfred's been worth a million dollars working on this project. Absolutely. And Alfred's been in Flatwood several times, and so is Stan. All right, well, we're at 20 seconds left, so i got to say goodnight to the live audience. I'll include the plugs uh, for Banal of America stuff after that. But on that note, thanks for tuning in, folks. we got a whole new episode coming at you next week, and uh, until then, have a good one, folks. All right, the, uh, the live audience is gone, but let me throw in the plugs here for Banal of America for the folks listening on the MP3s. You can find out more about BOA at banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Check us out on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America. And I want to give props and uh, congratulations to Con Anderson. He was like number 1,099. Jeremy Bloxon was the long-awaited like number 1,100. And Scott Bringhurst just missed the cutoff there. He was like number 1,101. If you want to help out the program and keep us on the air, you can make donations via PayPal or our P.O. Box. All that information can be found at Banal of America. The next edition of the program will be coming at you on November 12th, one week from tonight. It will be a taped episode featuring Dr. Annie Kagan and Bill Guggenheim talking about after-death communication. I read the email from Mike and Ken about their outro song on the last episode and forgot to include it. So stay tuned in just a few moments and you'll hear the fancy outro song from Mike and Ken. And with all that said, thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Thank you for your enduring support of Banal of America and thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal thanking you for listening and signing off.